Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm Marlene Schwartz and Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. And I'm here with Dr. Joel Gittleson, who is professor at the Center for Human Nutrition at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Welcome to New Haven. Thanks very much for having me. So um, we're delighted to have you here today because one of the um, many projects that you've been involved in is using both qualitative and quantitative methods to study stores in low-income neighborhoods and changing the availability of healthy foods in those stores. And I was wondering if you could tell us some about that project. Okay, so actually I've worked on a series of projects called the Healthy Stores Projects in seven or eight different venues around the world. And as an initial stage of those projects, we always do what we call formative research, and that's information gathering to help us plan the program and to involve and engage community members in the planning process. And so the formative research usually includes a combination of qualitative and quantitative data collection methods. The quantitative method very frequently is uh, 24-hour dietary recalls to get an assessment of the foods consumed and which foods contribute the most um, calories, fat, sugar to the diet. The qualitative bits are usually focused on using in-depth interviews to assess kind of the perspectives of different stakeholders within the community. So community members, store owners and managers, community leaders, health staff, those sorts of people who have a stake in deciding what or helping to frame and figure out the um, how to best approach the obesity or chronic disease epidemic in their settings. So what are some of the different places where you've done these projects? So the Healthy Stores projects uh, initiate, were initiated in the Republic of the Marshall Islands um, in about the year 2001. Uh, there have been projects in Baltimore which are ongoing, which are going to be the focus of, I think, our discussion mainly today. Um, I've also worked with the Apache, with Navajo, with First Nations in Canada, um, and with Pacific Islanders in Hawaii. and. Uh, I have a project which is actually, um, the PI is Dr. Sangeeta Sharma from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, that project is in the Canadian Arctic. So um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the Baltimore project. So what did the um, environment look like when you first started looking at the stores in Baltimore? So the focus of the work in Baltimore has been primarily on low-income areas of the city. So just like any city or many cities, there are areas that are, you know, sort of wealthier people live, middle class areas and areas where um, people who are poor uh, usually live. And so the focus has been really in those low income areas. So if you look at those low income areas, what you see is really a lack of regular supermarkets. Uh, there will be very, very few regular supermarkets. There might be small supermarkets, medium-sized grocery stores, but the vast majority of food sources in those settings are uh, corner stores and carry-out restaurants. And so it's you know in a, in a ratio of 10 to 1 or maybe even 20 to 1. Wow. There's far more of those kinds of stores or, or food sources than there are regular supermarkets. So there's a big issue of access and access in terms of availability of healthy food choices, much less in the low-income areas. Access in terms of pricing. Prices tend to be somewhat higher in those small food stores than they would be at your 
large supermarket like a Safeway or a Giant or something like that. And that sometimes, you know, seems like a real paradox that the prices are actually higher in the neighborhoods where the people can least afford the higher prices. Is that because the stores are smaller so they don't have the economies of scale that a large yeah, that's, store? That's basically the issue. So the small store owners who, um, and usually these are people who own just the one store, right? It's a what we used to call a mom and pop type store, but now we call them corner stores. Um, you, they, they, get their, they buy their food from uh, warehouse stores. Uh, they buy their food sometimes from what's on sale at, at a larger supermarket, like a Safeway. Sometimes they'll go to um, a Costco or a Sam's Club or something like that, and they'll, they'll purchase their foods there, which they then mark up somewhat and resell to the, um, to the people in their community. So they're not, they don't have big... Um, uh, central warehouses. They don't have deals with uh, distributors and so forth that can get the foods in there at a cheaper price. And so that's part of the reason that prices are higher in those small stores. So how do you um, begin the conversation with these corner store owners about you know, improving the nutrition of the foods that they offer in their stores? So a really important part of thinking about the, the small store situation in Baltimore is that about 80% of the small store owners are Korean American. And so, and I think if you look at all the urban settings across the United States, you'd see that in most urban settings, there's very frequently a specific ethnic group or a set of ethnic groups who are the owners or operators of these small stores. In Baltimore, the situation is that it's primarily Korean Americans. And um, they vary in terms of their communication ability in English. And um, one of the things that we found that we have to do to start this conversation is to, uh, to work with Korean-speaking students. So I have um, had several doctoral students who've worked with me who are from Korea and speak Korean then. And that has made the communication much more smooth um, with these stores. Another thing that we've done is that we've worked with the Korean American Grocers and Retailers Organization, KGRO, which is an actually a national organization with chapters in 20 or 30 different cities throughout the United States. And it's not, it's not like KGRO is a controlling or policy-setting organization. It's, a, it's a, I guess you'd say, a, a loosely organized merchant organization, but it has some influence over what happens in some of its member stores. And this influence, not control, but can provide some guidance. And certainly their letter of support or letters of support have been very helpful in developing these relationships with those stores. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what sorts of specific changes have you tried to inspire or encourage in these stores? So from a very early start, we sort of debated behind between this issue of how big a change is possible. And of course, you know, we would love to build 50, 60 supermarkets throughout Baltimore City, but that's not something that's certainly I don't have the power or ability to do. So what we've done is actually worked within uh, the existing system of small stores. And so what we've been able to do with these stores is get them to increase their stocks of a select number of healthy foods. Then what we do is point of purchase promotion to increase the demand for those foods among local consumers. So point of purchase promotion could include improved signage like posters, flyers, 
shelf labels. It can, could include interactive sessions at the stores themselves where we provide taste tests, um, where we provide little giveaways or something like that to encourage uh, people to try these new foods. So we're working at both the supply and demand side of things, trying to increase the supply of foods, but at the same time trying to increase the demand in the local community. So um, do you have some stories of times that this has gone particularly well in the stores? That's a very interesting question because what we found is every food that you try to promote is a different story. Uh -huh. And the same tricks or the same ways to try to encourage stores to stock low-fat milk are different than if you're trying to encourage them to stock baked chips or or water, or, or some other type of food, or, low, or fresh produce. So every single thing, every single food is a different story. So we have to, so, so there's been a lot, a, a sort of a learning process, I would say, in terms of what sorts of foods uh, we start off with first, and then in terms of how we would promote any particular food. So what we've done is, we've tended to focus on those foods, promoting those foods in the stores which have a long shelf life initially. The reason for that is we run the risk that if we put in or encourage the stores to stock foods that are highly perishable, then those foods, if, if we don't see initial success in sales of those foods, they may not support or believe that they could sell, that the, and, and they may decide not to stock um, some of the healthier foods we'd like them to promote later. So we initially s support or work with the stores to stock things like low-sugar, high-fiber cereals. They have a long shelf life. Um, maybe baked chips, uh, maybe bottled water, and those sorts of things that have a long shelf life that is not going to go bad in a couple of weeks like low-fat milk or like fruits and vegetables. And then when we show those that, that initial success with the stores, then we are able to, to convince them over time to try stocking some of the, the higher risk kinds of foods. Well, that makes a lot of sense because it seems like, you know, from the store owner's perspective, um, you know, they're probably happy to sell whatever food they think their customers are going to buy. But like you said, if they have a bad experience stocking something and then nobody buys it, that would probably make it hard for them to try. And in fact, thing. in um, the formative research we did in Baltimore, what we found from the store owners is that they said they'd love to stock healthier foods, but nobody buys it. Or that they tried to stock a healthy food, maybe it was low-fat milk, maybe it was whole wheat bread, but nobody bought it, it went bad, they lost money. And usually these small stores are on a fairly tight profit margin, and so they can't afford to have a lot of foods that are going to be bad bad sellers. You know, a, super, a large supermarket is different. A large supermarket, yeah, if they lose $500 trying something new or $1,000 trying something new, that's not a big deal for them. But in the small stores, if they lose $50 or $100 on a particular food that doesn't sell, that's a big deal for them. And they're, you know, if they have that bad experience, then they're very unlikely to try to sell that food in the future. That makes a lot of sense. So so how did it go with the cereals? Were people willing to buy the lower sugar, high fiber cereals? Yeah, so we had some success in in general in getting the stores in Baltimore to 
to stock a broader range of, of healthier foods. We also had some success in showing increased sales as reported by the stores themselves in terms of selling those foods during the phase that it was promoted and also six months after completion of the program. And that work has been published in a paper by Dr. He Jung Song. And um, uh, I think the, the, the fact that you saw increased stocking and sales of those foods six months after completion of the initial pilot program is very telling and very encouraging because it means that there was some maintenance. They weren't just doing it while we were there to please us, which is always a concern. They were uh, maintaining the stocks of those sales and they were reporting increased sales of those foods even post-intervention. Um, that's great because that really suggests that people are changing their habits in a more sustained way and, you know, really shifting to some of the different cereals. Um, I had another question which has to do with the new WIC package and the changes that the federal government has made in the foods that people can buy with their, with their WIC coupons. And I was wondering what effect do you think that will have on these corner stores, which I imagine probably have a number of people who use WIC when they go to them. So, so – Another piece of the picture about Baltimore is that, in fact, most of the corner stores, at least as of two years ago, were participants in the WIC program. In fact, many of them, so, so most meaning 70, 80 percent, perhaps. And um, of those stores that were participating in the WIC program, many of them, you know, they put up the little labels that said this was a WIC food. They, some of them would actually have a special section of the store dedicated to WIC products uh, and so forth. So in Baltimore, there was already, I would, get, I would say, buy-in to the WIC program. Now, of course, we have the new WIC package, um, a broader range of healthy foods that the stores will be required to, to sell in order to to show that they are WIC compliant, and um, my we we are just beginning the next phase of work in those stores, and so I don't have up to date information on giving you proportions of the stores and how well they're doing. But we have seen in some of the initial stores that we've um, been working with in this initial phase, they're you know they are trying to comply with the the WIC the new WIC guidelines by stocking fresh fruits and vegetables, perhaps, where they didn't have them by stocking some of the other foods that are part of the package. So it seems like they're, they're, doing, they're doing this. And in fact, the fact that sort of the timeliness of this new WIC package is somewhat good for us in terms of the new program as we expand um, in that um, they're sort of realizing they have to stock these foods anyways. So here comes this group who is willing to provide some point of purchase promotion of many of these same foods they're being asked to stock. So it's, it seems to be going over uh, fairly well. This is not to say that every store uh, is, is compliant, but in some of the stores that we've been to so far, we're seeing some adaptation and they seem to be happy for the additional promotional materials that we're providing. Well, that, yeah, that sounds really good. And you would think that the stores that you had already worked with would, would already have sort of an advantage that they had, you know, sort of tested out, maybe stocking some of these foods and, like you said, have access to their promotion. So that sounds like a really good synergy between your project and then what was happening with the WIC change. Um, any other uh, interesting things that you've learned that you sort of wouldn't have anticipated in doing this research about what, what it's really like to run one of these corner stores? Well, um, I guess 
from the Baltimore setting, one thing that we have learned um, was the importance of directing a proportion of the promotional activities at the store owners themselves. Mm. So as I mentioned before, the majority of store owners are Korean American. And we actually had to develop, or we chose to develop, a, um, a whole nutrition education session, cultural guidelines, store stocking guidelines in the Korean language that would be delivered to them by a Korean doctoral student who um, would work with them to sort of understand why some of these foods were healthier choices, why it would make sense to offer these foods, and so forth. So we developed a whole, I guess, educational component of the program that specifically addressed the Korean American merchants. See, I think that's such an important um, thing for all of us to remember that, you know, so, you know, sometimes we come into communities and have ideas of, you know, how we think these communities should change. And it is really important to understand the perspective of the people living in the community, especially if their culture is different than the one that, that you come from. So that's terrific. And that's great that you had the students available to sort of bridge that gap. Well, thank you so much for um, coming here, Dr. Gittleson. I've enjoyed speaking with you and looking forward to your um, presentation at the Rudd Center. This is Marlene Schwartz. I'm Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. Uh, you can visit us on our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, to hear many of the podcasts that we've recorded with our guests. Thank you. Thank you very much.